Grace Gillian. Hey there. I'm Katie Payne, and you're tuned into Resilience, a podcast about skills, the resilience they bring, and living closer to the ground so we don't have quite so far to fall if our fragile modern systems fail us. I'm recording on Jara country, the unceded lands of the Zsa Zsa Wurrung that were turned upside down and inside out during the gold rush in the 1850s, when millions maybe even billions of tonnes of topsoil were washed away. And I'm always amazed that this land continues to care for us. I'm not a doctor, though I wish I was, because who wouldn't want to take their petrified child to see Dr. Payne? However, I did study herbal medicine and practice as a naturopath, which could be why so many people still get in touch with me about plant medicine. I also reckon we're remembering our co-evolutionary path, humans and plants, using each other as trellises since forever. Plants supporting us, us supporting plants. So if you are one of those green appreciators, a wannabe witch, a budding shaman, a dandelion disciple, a mullen maestro, a burdock rocker, a sage mage, I could go on, but I won't. This episode with Taj Shikluna is for you. You might know Taj as the Permapixie, but she's currently in a rebranding chrysalis and will be emerging soon as something new and beautiful. I've admired Taj and her work for a long, long time, and perhaps you have too, especially if you're in or around Nam, where Taj leads all manner of magical, weedy, frondy workshops. She's a botanical educator, grassroots and bioregional herbalist, writer, forager, ore seeker and animist. I will also add that she is a clear, calm voice in the wilderness. I was beaming harder than roadside St. John's Wort throughout this conversation and also sharing kind of vulnerable parts of myself, which I was highly tempted to edit out, but I thought, fuck it, they can stay in because a big reason I do this podcast is to practice imperfectionism, which is the opposite of perfectionism. And on the imperfectionism front, please bear with the audio in this episode. You might find our voices a little hushed. And while I wish I could chalk it up purely to Taj's serenity, it's also because I stuffed up the recording levels and can't really max it out anymore without hurting your ears. So I hope that your speakers enjoy the chance to flex their upper limits, uh, turn us up and listen right through to the end because Taj is on the cusp of starting a bunch of wonderful workshops and courses that she'll give you more details about towards the end of the conversation. So, find a comfortable posse and enjoy this damn fine, shamelessly geeky, green and dreamy conversation with Taj Shikluna. Welcome Taj. Welcome to Resilience. It is so lovely to be able to have this conversation in person. Mm. Yeah, it's been a real joy to localize this recording and start in a very tight zone of people in this community who are extraordinary yeah especially in such a kind of global world where we're trying to advocate for localism um, rather than globalism obviously that's part of our life now but it it is really nice to have face-to-face interactions whenever we can because that's what community is supposed to be based off yeah yeah I was rereading my questions before you came, Mm. trying to absorb them into my genetic code. (laughs) And I was realizing that I spent a lot of time in Adelaide and I don't know if you've 
been to SA or spent time there, but they say dance and plants mm. and lamp. Oh, no, they just say lamp. But um, I was like, fuck, am I going to say plant or am I going to say plant? Mm. So I'm going to go with plant. You're going to go with plant tonight. Okay. Yeah. 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 But okay. um, you can swap and change between the two. I don't, I don't have any need for consistency. Is that disconcerting? Not at all. <laughs> no. I well, won't even recognize my my um my co-teacher and colleague says that I'm one of the most inconsistent people that she knows um she edits all of my things because she's a Virgo and she's very meticulous and I love it because we create such a good team together um and she doesn't judge me for being completely inconsistent but she we just laugh about it so I don't mind <laughs> Well, it actually reminded me of when you first arrived, you dubbed yourself the debris machine. The debris machine. So you have quite a few monikers by, yes. <laughs> by the sounds of things. Can yeah. you explain the debris machine reference? Uh, that I constantly leave a trail of debris wherever I go. And so it'll end up in the bed. It's in my pocket. It's in my car. It's in my bra. I just have twigs and seeds and leaves and things that just follow me. Yeah, and um, much to the perils of some partners, uh, some former partners as well. <laughs> She's like, how does this get in the bed? Yeah. It's literally me. a thorn in my side. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you've got to be okay with the debris if you're going to be around me because it just follows me everywhere. I don't know how. Is that because you're foraging as part of your daily routine and whenever the feeling or fancy strikes? Yes, yeah, it'll be that. It'll be me foraging. It's also me getting excited by things and going, ooh, I wonder what that seed is. Or I wonder, oh, there's this plant that grows here. Great. I'm going to, that one smells nice. And I'll just start putting them, you know, in my bra or in my bag or in my pockets or anything like that. And I just forget about them and then find them a while later. Yeah, well, someone else does, much to their dismay. <laughs> Perfectly pressed and dried. Mm, there we go. <laughs> I'm a human pressing machine. <laughs> a machine. And I often ask myself, when I'm approaching a plant to pick something, um, I, I catch myself thinking, oh, what's the best way to go about this? Do mm. I use scissors? Do I use my hand? Do I ask permission? Do you have an approach? Yeah, uh... It sometimes depends on the plant. Um, I don't... I often try and keep my secateurs in my bag or my basket, and I have a basket instead of a bag, really, because then I can fill it with debris. Uh, And I do have a bit of an approach. One thing that is quite consistent with me is because I see quite a few clients now or people or building my own dispensary or things like this, Whenever I'm harvesting the plant, uh, one of the things that I say in my head kind of personally but to the plant is, can I take some of you so it's you I become? Mm. Because I feel that's the exchange that's taking place. I, By ingesting this plant, we actually, it becomes part of us, you know, and we're taking in... Um, those constituents and that chemistry and that life force and all of those different compounds that make that plant up and then starts to build our bodies. So I love that. That's one of the things that I say. And also I try and talk to the plants, especially if I'm picking them for a particular purpose for a client or for clients in general. I tell the plant what they're going to, what they're going to become. 
I say, oh, you're going to turn into medicine for this and I really want you to help this person with this particular thing or, you know, this you're going to be a great antiviral and I really want you to help people heal with their shingles or, you know, what's going on. And so I feel that's a reciprocity that I can offer that plant of like, if I'm going to take some of you, this is why I'm going to do it. And so I hope you're okay with that. Mm. <laughs> It is so intimate, isn't it? And mm. Susan Weed, I've heard her say that when you love something, you put it in your body. Mm. And that's what we're doing with our food and mm. the the plants. And what do you think they want? I feel like being in exchange, like everything in the world is in relationship and yearns to be. And we we yearn to be. Like we all think that the the one thing that all humans have in common is wanting connection and belonging so I don't think that it would be very different for plants either and by interacting with them but also I often try and think about how I can tend to a plant um, if I can uh, with what it might need you know is does it does it need fertilizer does it need water does it need a prune you know um, this I I can't stand this idea that some people have that the world would be better off without humans. Um, I think that it's I think that it's irresponsible to be honest. That and it kind of like it, we tap out if we think that way. I think that we can be very beneficial and we have been. And it's about making that choice of wanting to benefit something else. And so I feel like we can make that choice with plants of just asking those questions. Even like to me, just asking the question is good enough. Like, I wonder, I wonder what you need. Doesn't, don't most people want that question asked of them? So I want to ask the plants that too. I wonder what you need right now. Mm. Yeah. So beautiful. Mm. Mm. I would like to make sure this conversation is kind of founded in Um, your personal story and who you are and where you've come from. And I was reflecting that a lot of the herbal practitioners and health practitioners I know have arrived at their practice due to their own health challenges Mm. and that was what spurred them on the path. Is that the case for you? Uh, Not my own necessarily, but others, I think. Um... It's really interesting. So when I was, I grew up in the middle of suburbia, you know, kind of, I call it like white walled suburbia. Um, Couldn't get more suburban, really. And I would always go out to the backyard as a young girl and play dress ups. One of my favorite things to dress up as was a medicine woman. I don't necessarily know why. I know why now. But, you know, I remember finding my mum's mortar and pestle and just being enthralled by it and just, oh, my God, yes, I'm going to wear my, you know, um, wear my long flowy skirts and I'm going to go outside with the mortar and pestle. And so I do think there was something innate. There was something there in me. Uh, Natural places spoke to me um, and the outdoors spoke to me and just had that running through me. But then also, I think that I watched my mum struggle quite a bit with her health in life. And, you know, I'm always particular about what I, what I talk about with my family because, you know, they haven't necessarily given their consent for me to talk about their life perils. But, you know, she, I don't know if 
I guess she came from certain struggles that made it hard for her to be a really healthy person in the world. And then, yeah, I think that I was surrounded by that a little bit and I wanted to help. There's a real big thing for me with healing. I think a lot of people that are attracted to healing are really wanting to help something. And so for me, I really wanted to be able to help people. Um, I'm very lucky that I actually haven't had huge, like a huge health journey that has um, spurred this along. But it's definitely made me want to help others that have struggled or perhaps not had the um, fortitude or privilege that I've had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it does fascinate me speaking with people who've had that sense of purpose and, as you said, something working through you from a young age. It fascinates me because I don't feel like that Mm. or if I do, I haven't tuned attuned to that or um, for some reason I've um, kind of turned down the dial on, on that awareness. And, yeah, have you had moments of like experimentation with completely different life paths or crippling self-doubt in your Mm. purpose and and drive have you flapped around at any point I I wouldn't self-doubt yes flapping around no I don't think that I'm um I yeah I I, I don't think that I've been a very vague person with what I've wanted to do with my life when I kind of found it Um, And I've always wanted to know what it is as well. So I remember even when I uh, travelled to to England when I was 19 and wanted to go and kind of... I wanted to find who I was. I don't know why I went to England necessarily, but a friend and I were going. And while everyone else, you know, I was still a part of it, but while we're all kind of, you know, getting very inebriated and living that part of our lives there was this burning desire in me you know I'd often be out at night looking around at people um going this can't be it this isn't all there is this isn't it I want to find what it is so I go to the forest a lot when I was in England and ask the questions as well like what is it and then it was interestingly enough in England I got introduced to permaculture Mm -hmm. when I was 19 and I went whoa you mean you mean people still live like this? I thought it was like an old way. I thought it was gone. And I thought I was living in this weird suburban modern era where I, that I just really didn't agree with. And I was like, why am I here? I'm born for a different time. And then I realized that people were still living in this way, still homesteading. And I just went, that's it. That's what I want to do. And so I followed that. And I've always had a real deep affinity to healing plants and medicinal plants and so I always knew that that was a really big part of the of the journey so I haven't had too much experimentation with life paths I feel like I've been incredibly lucky and worked very hard but incredibly lucky to know that and go for it that's not where my life's struggles lie I have struggles in other areas of my life but that hasn't been one and it's really interesting because I've known lots of people that do struggle with like oh you know what is like my my purpose but it's also because in our society purpose is defined by work and so I want to also say to people that are listening that you don't have to let that define you I'm lucky enough to have found something that fits that mold 
in the world, but that's not the only way to define yourself either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I do get moments of a lot of moments of self doubt. So for those people that might see me like smiling and, you know, doing all my thing. Yeah. I can, I can laugh through my self doubt. And I think that that's one of the keys is because I, I try, I don't always, you know, succeed, but I try to take what I do seriously, not myself. You know, I, I don't, I'm not in it to take myself too seriously about this. I'm a bumbling fool sometimes. And I like to be able to try and laugh at that while still taking the larger things in life seriously mm-hmm. if I can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> there are so many tangents that are presenting <laughs> themselves and beckoning in my mind. But I'd really love to dig into this this yearning that you experienced for mm. connection with the more than human world with wild spaces with plants and glean your perspective on what that yearning is because so many people people used to know me a lot more as someone in the health space in the herbal medicine space and still I receive messages hey Katie what what herbalism course can I do or mm. what what can I forage right now or what do you what books would you recommend I just have this calling, this intense, mm. inexplicable desire to make medicine and to work with, with plants. So I'm curious because you are so alive in that space, Taj, what you think it is about plants that speak so profoundly to the human soul. Mm. Medicinal plants particularly? Well, in terms of herbalism because you get those questions or plants in general? Oh, yeah, that's such a good question. Maybe I'll ask a question in response which is, do, do you think that there's medicine in all plants, mm. whether you can ingest them or not? Very much so. Yeah, and this is one of the big things that I try and uh, teach and, and facilitate and put out there into the world is that I was even thinking about it yesterday when I was looking at my flower garden or mine and my partner's flower garden that we've planted. And it it's so alive at the moment. It's just so alive. And every time I get home, I just... I'm so happy. Every time I'm sitting outside, I'm so happy to look at it. And the bees are so happy and the butterflies. And like that is a medicine Mm -hmm. just from the plant being alive and growing and just be you being around it. They make you feel better. And I don't have to ingest that to feel good. I think it's quite an allopathic thing to actually think of medicine in terms of purely ingesting something Um, for it to have a physiological effect Mm -hmm. because there's so many things that affect our physiology you think about horticulture therapy or forest bathing or anything Mm -hmm. like that now where the science has proved that it's good for our nervous system well like of course it is we've evolved with these plants Mm -hmm. you know through since the beginning of our world Mm -hmm. and yeah i think that they have medicine in terms of beauty in terms of functionality, in terms of shade, having a picnic under a tree, you know, the being able to watch the birds, uh, being able to have a, a connection with your local ecology through plant, the plant life, that's a huge part of the medicine. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I, I coin these medicinal terms like that's tagasasti medicine and that's tagasasti that's so easy to climb and I can Mm. climb up the tag tree and have a new perspective or have the feel of its bark or the 
interaction with the New Holland honey eater at the mm. end of the branch. And I think that's what I'm also hearing in your response of um, these subtle medicines or these um, medicines that lie outside the kind of dominant paradigm um, at this time. Like mulberry medicine is really hot right now because it's like, I want that mulberry and I want it now, but it's not going to come off because it's not quite ripe. So it's going to spurt all over my fingers and my clothes. And really I needed to just tune into what was really ready and would just have popped off without any kind of force and what I needed to just let cook a little bit longer. Mm. Yeah, we've got a mulberry tree on the property that I'm on at the moment and it's a, it's about 100 years old, 120 years old. It's huge. It's a huge rambling thing and, um, you know, we are always climbing it and the kids are always climbing it. So it's not only the medicine of the antioxidant-rich berries that are there, but it's like the climbing medicine that's so good for your body that a lot of people don't do anymore and it's really affecting our mobility the fact that we don't climb trees anymore so that's a huge part of it for Mm. me you know when I'm talking to clients one of the main one of the main ailments that people will have are directly correlated with their lack of movement and mobility Mm. and what better way to get it than to climb a tree for some berries like we were actually designed to do Mm -hmm. yeah been mm. I realize I've been going to bed with wormwood this week because mm. I've just been through a breakup and it's mm. like I wanted someone something just to reach out and touch mm. <laughs> and just going to bed with my hand over the wormwood and it's so aromatic and it's so soft against mm. my skin and I think that that like the concepts that I've been talking about for so many years are only just taking root in my life and I love feeling that long time process, that long term process of the theory of, yeah, relating with plants and speaking mm. with them. And then you get to this place of, oh, I'm sleeping with wormwood. Mm. Wonderful. We're in a relationship. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. Well, people don't uh, realize the importance of, uh, of having plants to rely on sometimes. For me, for me, sometimes they've been more reliable than people, you know? And so it's a, it's a really amazing relationship. It's this consistency. Uh, every year I know that they're going to pop up, uh, you know, weather permitting, but usually they will. And they, it means that I can have that relationship. I can harvest that time of the year. It's the seasons and the plants that come with them are one of the most reliable things that I've had in my life. And I think that I've really craved that consistency and that reliability so of course we would form full relationships with them you know but for some people it might just seem weird that you're sleeping with wormwood but for me it's actually wonderful and I think that it's a beautiful medicine to actually um uh to yeah it's a beautiful medicine to have in your life after such a deep and rich time like Mm. going through a breakup or something like that you've Mm. really managed to think about how sleeping at night that's one of the hardest things when you when most people break up with someone it's really really hard to wake up in the night and oh my god they're not there or whether someone dies or something like that it's a huge grieving process to so they don't have something that's aromatic that you can touch that you can actually smell just like a lover's smell you know and that you can rely on you're like it's okay i'm gonna be fine plants are there I'm going to be fine Hmm. 
Mm. So what are some of your favourite relationships, botanically mm. speaking? Nettle has been one of my ongoing love affairs uh, for, for many, many years. As soon as I have a um, long infusion of nettle and it touches my lips, I instantly, instantly feel better. I instantly feel more alive and nourished and present and I just go, ah, oh, it's like, oh, thank you, old friend. You're here. You know, and I, I'll, I'm a big fan of nutritive herbs, so I have it if I'm feeling really depleted, and I try and make it quite a regular part of my diet and, and living. And another one is oat straw. Mm-hmm. And oat straw has just been a huge companion for my nervous system and learning the strength in softness and stillness rather than a need to constantly fight. Mm. 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 It is so sweet and mm. I feel you can t- taste that mineral, the minerality and the, the softening and the, your nerves kind of unfurling <laughs> with joy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I often put it in my water. Mm. I'll make an uh, extract with it. I'll put it in my water or I'll simmer oat straw in milk at night, wait for it to go all golden and then I'll have have that as a little bit of a wind down as well. And it does feel like that. I can just feel myself being like slowly unraveled and replenished. Mm. Mm. And are you able to explain the difference between a herbal tea and a herbal infusion? Mm. Yeah, so uh, quite often uh, a, a tea will be called an infusion. But uh, medicinally speaking, if you want a tea to be medicinal then quite often it actually needs to be a larger amount of the herb. So, um, and I usually will do it for quite a number of hours. It depends on the herb because, for example, with chamomile, if you have a chamomile infusion and you infuse it for 10 to 20 minutes, you'll get the aromatics out of it. Um, If you infuse it for a longer period of time, you'll actually get the bitters. And they both do different things. So the aromatics are mainly for the nervous system. Um, and uh, for heart variability and heart regulation. And then the bitters will be more for your digestive system. So it depends on what you're trying to get from the plant as well. So for a tea, I'll usually, you know, I'll usually actually use a whole handful of nettle and then in um, 750ml or a litre of water and infuse that overnight. Mm -hmm. And that's what I do. Um, I would... I thought about giving grams, but they're actually different for different herbs depending on their weights. So yeah, I usually just go with a big handful of herbs and do that overnight. And the color changes and you can see usually that it's much richer. And so from this point of view, side tangent, I'll just let the listeners know to always use your senses when you're making medicines because you know, rely on your sense of smell. Is it really aromatic? Are the pigments changing? Is it a rich color? And the those kind of things, your senses will let you know when it is potent and when it is ready. So I like to encourage that in people a little bit. Mm. Mm. And that's such a good starting point too for learning about the actions of things mm. and recognizing that, okay, if something has that kind of um, smell, like an essential oil that might be working in a certain way mm. or trying to think like yeah the bitter compounds and how that affects digestion Um, but tuning in first to what we're tasting and sensing as a gateway rather than just a bunch of technical terminology Mm. that can filter right through the colander of your mind 
it's usually the place that I like to start a lot of the time with people uh, is I'll in my herb courses that I do and our herb courses me and my colleague Willow Herb Nerd um, we'll start with a lot of what what I refer to as sensual herbalism because it's using your senses or sensory herbalism and you know there's quite a few things that you can discern with your senses and then going from there because this is how we learnt to be herbalists by sensing things by looking at things and by you know documenting things but we didn't always have access to the technologies we have today our technology was our senses and now they're so um kind of numbed in some ways because we live very um overstimulating lifestyles um and a lot of the time we're not really in the natural world using our senses climbing things touching things tasting things smelling things feeling things and so that's usually where i like to start because then it also it's lovely to see people awaken and go oh you mean that i can do this i don't need a book i don't need a website i don't need another person it's like yeah yeah you can do this yeah just start mm. sensing mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, I feel like the more that I learn about, I'm really obsessed with weed medicine mm. for so many reasons because I identify as a weedy person. Mm -hmm. I think that the Band-Aids kind of over the skin of our earth at this point in time, they're so generous and the way that we malign them just breaks my heart. Yeah. But the more I learn, the more I think, God damn, one herb can do pretty much everything. You know what I mean? Like I look at plantain mm. and I go deeper and deeper and deeper into its studied constituents and all its traditional uses and I just think this is actually applicable in so many scenarios so I wonder what your feeling is around exotic hyper-specific herbs and herbs that are very um, indicated for x condition versus the accessible things we have on our doorstep and how dynamic and multi-talented they can be yeah well, I often say, especially if I'm doing foraging courses, that um, dandelion is a superfood. It just can't be marketed to you. I reckon you could have everywhere. a pretty good shot at marketing dandelion yeah. to the people. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, well, you could. You could, but, like, you know, because people really want uh, things that are convenient. So you could definitely package it that way. But, you know, it grows everywhere. And um, we're, we're always sold things that are rare or exotic, uh, usually they're having really deep social and political um, outcomes in other places uh, and quite often they aren't usually good for the local people or economies. So I'm not necessarily a huge fan. Um, there are certain things that I won't use in my practice unless I can grow it or, you know, myself or I know where it comes from, like rhodiola is one that I won't use because it's over-harvested and I try not to use the things that are over-harvested. Um, I do use things, uh, there are a few, there's a few exceptions that I have, you know. I do love kava. I think kava is ab absolutely wonderful. So I do love that. But quite often I will always try and go with the local source um, if I think that it's relevant and the source that I can get people to connect to themselves. You know, so if it's growing in their backyards, I want, I would rather teach a client or, a, you know, a participant in the course how to go and make medicine for themselves. It's empowering and they feel like they've got autonomy over their health. Um, 
that's super empowering. And I think that weeds allow us to have reclaim that power. They're like the, um, they're, they're an icon for the peasant, I think. And I, there's something that is, you know, really rich in that for me of just the kind of, uh, underdog or that won't be, uh, they won't be smited, <laughs> you know, and I love that. So yeah, I will always try and use things that I can grow or I can forage or try and teach people to do the same because quite often I think that there will be something growing around that does a very similar thing, you know, rather than getting something rare and exotic that has all of the embodied energy and is probably um, having really deep and negative impacts on the people from that place. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I'm thinking of a time when I was in Tasmania, when I was out on a walk with a friend and I excitedly saw what I decreed was Queen Anne's lace, Mm. beautiful, umbiliferous, delicate lacy flowers in a big stand by the side of the road. And I cut some off and skipped down the road with my beautiful bouquet and a local, bless his cotton socks, drove past and wound down the window and was like, darling, you got a handful of hemlock. Hemlock, yeah, I was <laughs> going to say. And I was like, oh, God. And in that moment I realised a little bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. But I also feel that tension of people being so intimidated mm-hmm. by wild foods and wild medicines and interacting as you're, as you're speaking about with our senses and trusting that we can um, navigate the world in that way. So... Like when do people have enough knowledge to start Mm. foraging and making their own medicine without, uh, you know, having the fate of, is it Socrates who died of hemlock (laughs) Hemlock, poisoning? Yeah. When I teach a foraging course, uh, one of the first things that we we talk about um, education rather than fear, you know, and um, so many people are so scared of foraging. And if you put that in your mouth, you're going to die. And there's, so many more things that are edible than things that aren't, you know, we wouldn't be alive now. We wouldn't be alive today if our ancestors didn't forage. So that's proof enough for me that it's quite okay to do. Uh, However, I usually start with the poisonous things first or trying to even look up like the internet is an amazing tool and you can even Google things and try and find the poisonous plants that are in your area or bioregion. And you start with those first and you start to just get familiar with pictures of them and you don't eat anything that you aren't sure of. And then start with, I usually just say start with one or two plants that are edible that you can try and start safely identifying and go out and try and start identifying them. And there's amazing forums online as well where you can actually post your photos and lots of people will get back to you. And, you know, even if you just looked up foraging forum, foraging forum Victoria or whatever it might be, uh, you can find a lot of people that are very willing to help you if you need to identify something. I think that everyone actually has it in them to be able to do this, though. I don't want people to feel so fearful that they won't ever put anything in their mouth, but it comes with a degree of you know, um, common sense, which I think that we're relearning as a culture (laughs) and a degree of education. So just keep your mind kind of open and curious and don't, 
if you're really that afraid of it, then get confirmation from someone else. But you don't need to be too afraid Mm. of it. Mm. Mm. And there is such a profound recognition when you know a plant, when you know, you know it, you know it. Mm -hmm. You look at it and you're like, yep, that's, it's unmistakable. Yeah. It's like a friend's face. Mm, exactly. Mm. And I can, you know, now I can see like the differences, you know, I, I'm sure you can as well. You know, you'd be driving along and like St. John's wort yellow is a different to dandelion yellow. Even is different to South is yellow. Um, they're all like differences and you can, I can see, pick these things up very, very quickly. And um, that comes from just looking at things. It's literally people go, how did you start this? I literally started looking at the ground, asking questions, being curious, picking things up, looking at them, you know, intently. Oh, that one has that kind of leaf and this one has that one. Oh, that's cool. You know, and get a, getting different books on it and then just looking at them and just remaining curious about it. Yeah. And I've had someone say to me like, oh, you know, I started doing this and it seems to take so long and they were only doing it for a few months. And I was like, yeah, it, it's a whole language, you know, and it takes years like you have to really want to do it uh but it's as long as you love it and you're interested in it and you remain curious i think that then that yeah that says a lot and that'll just keep you going Mm. Mm. yeah i really want to come back to curiosity Mm. because that's a big thing i want to discuss with you but first of all i want to keep plumbing the foraging depths yes and just on what you were saying um i think we both have um the urban nana as mm. a mutual acquaintance and a friend. And I know she spends a year sometimes taking spore prints of a mushroom that she's working with and will saute it or dry it or do all manner of things before she ever eats it. And that's mm. not, you know, the lengths you have to go to in terms of working with a plant. It's just that that timeline of, of familiarity and that's a relationship she's cultivating as well and it always impressed upon me the depths that you can go to too with one single entity and uh yeah so just on the mushroom foraging front Mm. (laughs) people really who are um honing that amazing ancestral skill spend a lot of time there yeah yeah Yeah, mushrooms for me are a whole other kettle of fish um i think that you know they're they're to be very respected um and they can cause quite a bit of damage if you don't necessarily know what we're doing and so even like me I've been doing foraging for a long time but I'm not a mycologist and it's not my forte so I like definitely get confirmation from people that I know if I want to eat any mushrooms or anything like that I feel like fungi is less forgiving in some ways they want you dead they want to eat your body (laughs) yeah yeah, oh my god (laughs) yeah well they're like they've been really working at this (laughs) yeah well so yeah there's um I do think that they need to be respected quite a lot um but I also like the idea you know with the urban nana doing this for a year I will sometimes suggest that to people with plants and not necessarily a year but just in terms of overloading yourself with information this is one of the reasons what drives my courses and how I teach is people get interested in herbalism and they'll get a book and I'll have just, you know, a page and a lot of the time a pretty naff page on one herb and then it'll just have that 280 times, 200 different herbs. How are you supposed to flick through a book like that and remember what each 
you know, each property is of each plant or each identification feature, you get lost, it gets oversaturated. So I will often tell people start with one plant and have a plant ally a month or something. And this is what we're going to be doing in the new um, year-long program that I'm, I'm releasing is just starting with a plant a month to really delve deep into. And then you don't get, you, you don't get so oversaturated and you get to know it like a friend. Like you were saying, about like, hello, old friend, it's a friend there. You wouldn't forget a friend after you'd get got to know them for a month. But you can't really expect to go to a party, you know, meet 200 people, and then remember the name of everyone. <laughs> it's absurd. I kind of want to go to that party, though. <laughs> Just once. The plant party. The plant party. Yeah, <laughs> I would totally want to go to that as well. <laughs> but I did derail a little bit the foraging question, which I want to ask around ethics and sustainability because Mm. foraging is so in the the zeitgeist the foodie kind of realm in recent years I know that my foraging friends are lamenting the loss of some of their favorite patches of mushrooms or elder trees Mm. or you know there's the pendulum swinging back in that um, other direction of over harvesting so as a forager and a herbal educator what is your um, code around mm. wild harvesting? Yeah, this is really interesting. I think it's also a little bit different uh, for mushrooms. Uh, mushrooms have been decimated in some areas that I know uh, around me as well. And it's been really, really sad. And it's been really sad to see the treatment of those places after people have been there. So, yeah, it, it breaks my heart a little bit as you know, foraging becomes more popular. So my code of ethics really is, um, first of all, looking at a patch and not taking more than you need, uh, for assessing whether you should take any at all, you know, and is there enough there? Can you leave, uh, you know, two-thirds of it? I usually will try and just take a third, um, depending on how big the patch is, that is. And... Uh, only taking enough for me like do I even need more than this why why am I doing that Um, how many people am I going to supply with this for me um, I see a lot of people or a lot of clients so it does feel nice that I get to share that it's not just for my own consumption Um, and I feel good a lot of the time about foraging and wildcrafting because I educate with it so I feel like that creates a little bit of a ripple that hopefully will come back to those patches but yeah I I don't I try not to take more than a third of the patch and it also depends on whether whether it's like this is a loaded term but whether it's an invasive species Uh, there are some things that I don't feel nearly as bad about foraging than others Uh, St John's wort or dandelion like they they're going to replenish they're going to come back there's going to be a lot of them and for sometimes they sometimes they can pose a little bit of a threat to more endemic areas you know for example it, urban i don't really mind about that because there's no not really many endemic plants there that really need to grow uh, so it's not as much of a consideration but i also try and think about what else is using it and this is another thing that we're very bad at in our culture. It's very human-centric. And 
be honest, like permaculture has been very human centric, I think, for a very long time. It's like, what yield am I going to get? And yeah, we do have to think about ourselves and how we're going to sustain ourselves in the world. I understand that. But also, what else is using it? Is it a nectary for something? Is it a habitat for something? So I really like to encourage people to make that a part of their code of ethics of trying to research what actually feeds off a plant, what uses the plant that you're harvesting. And to even just give that a little bit of consideration, I think is very important. Mm. Yeah, that does bring up the more than human that brings the more than human Mm. into this conversation, Mm. which I'm really glad about because I know you have some thoughts on humanity's schism. Mm. I just wanted to say that word, the schism between Mm. humanity and the the more than human and that separation that has occurred somewhere along the line, which has has arguably kind of led to the civilization and the structures that we see today which are so wholly separate and blind to nature in your estimation when and why has that occurred and mm. what are you doing to repair that rift mm. yeah i think that there is a schism there definitely um and Look, I'm going to be honest, this is like one of my kind of self-doubt moments because I'm, I'm terrible at history, always been terrible at history, um, had a very bad history teacher, um, it's easy to blame him. But uh, so I guess that I, what I'm going to say now, I would like to say that it's, it's a bit of an opinion piece. I've done like some reading in regards to this. Uh, however, you know, uh, I don't have a lot of research to back up my feelings on this. But um, I think not Catholicism, but the church. Like I, I, I want people to know that are listening that I have no qualms with any religious practice that anyone practices to feel closer to the divine. That's wonderful. That's awesome. Um, But it was more the construct, the construct of the church leading to um, the schism between peasant societies and creating more hierarchies. Um, uh, A a lot of offences actually started being established around those times as well, um, instead of having a commons. And so, yeah, I see... Like And interestingly enough, also I've thought about this in terms of permaculture because permaculture talks about agriculture and the birth of agriculture has a lot to answer for too. So um, with the birth of agriculture came uh, hierarchical systems and I think with hierarchical systems then came this idea that hands-on work was peasants' work and then there was other work that was more noble which still is a thing today, you know, tradespeople and people that are gardeners or a lot of people that work with their hands are treated differently than people that are CEOs or managed companies or things like that. So we still have these like, you know, throwbacks today. And so I think that that's maybe where some of this schism occurred because not everyone was having a relationship to plants anymore and having a relationship to plants was actually considered a lesser or lower thing to be doing with your time and your life than maybe some more of the noble things and 
what I'm doing to like try and repair that is interesting. I think that to me, it's education. Um, I just think that education is one of the gentlest ways not to persuade people but to open them up to a different kind of reality or to um, keep the questions going and then hopefully act differently you know so I like to educate I want to share what I've found with people if they don't choose to do what I do then that's okay but at least I'm opening up that platform and hopefully they'll keep asking questions and opening opening up different platforms with other people and I think that education is one of the ways that I really want to change the world even in a small way you know I don't think that I'm going to change the world but together with having discussions and being able to have discussions together that are educational for both parties rather than it be a conflict I think that's a huge thing, being open to being educated by someone else rather than thinking that you are an authority on something or that to have conflict or to disagree means that you're arguing. I think that if we had better platforms for discussion and being open-minded to each other's ideas, we might get a little bit further. Mm-hmm. yeah well said mm. I would love to take this little path in the gully that I'm, I'm looking down and ask about the application of what you just said to your everyday life because I'm thinking that you know there's the the modern life that maybe we mm. can um, tar with that brush of you know that's a domestic kind of comfortable walking on concrete existence gross generalisation, mm-hmm. but if that's the domesticated world and the um, nature-removed world, what is your world? Like, are you mm. undomesticating yourself? <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. Um, sometimes I don't know if I've become, like, a little bit more jaded and I hope that that's not the case. Maybe maybe a touch more realism uh, rather than idealism. I've been in therapy for idealism for quite some time. You go to therapy um, for that? For idealism, yeah. <laughs> Just a touch a touch more reality. Uh, so it's, a, it's an interesting question because I feel, I feel when I first got started, I really wanted to make my life a certain way. And, I, you know, and, I, and a lot of it actually came from re- rejecting, rejecting the way that had been presented to me, like, one thing that's always really gotten to me is I didn't ask for this. I didn't consent to this. I I almost want a t-shirt that says capitalism. I didn't consent to this because I've really felt that for a lot of my life that I'm living in a world that has certain constructs that I don't agree with. Um, and then trying to navigate around that. So I think a lot of my, um, yeah, my early journey was rejection of certain some of those you know more domesticated concrete kind of ways but then there was also a time where I just had to get really realistic about it and go like I'm here and also realize that one day I realized that I'm gonna die before I see the world the way I want it to be 
and that was a big thing you know oh, I'm I'm working towards this thing that I really believe in but I'm actually not going to see it um, and there was a humbling feeling that came with that of going oh and also oh it's not a it's not about me it's just going to keep going so I think it made me uh, able to be gentler on myself with the way that I actually wanted to live my lifestyle. So now I feel a little bit more balanced. I practice fuck it moments daily. I don't, am I allowed to say that on your Absolutely. podcast? Absolutely. My okay, podcast great. is marked with an E for explicit. And I'm really sad <laughs> because the last five episodes, nobody's dropped the F bomb, oh, let alone the C bomb. All right. Well, you just wait. Strap yourselves <laughs> in, everybody. But um, yeah, you know, I, I practice fuck it moments regularly because uh, I got a lot of eco anxiety when I started permaculture. And I would just literally just have a meltdown at anything that I picked up and everything that I wanted to buy or anything like this. And it was just such a minefield to me. And so now there's just moments where I go, "Mm, I know that that's not the best decision for X, Y, and Z, but fuck it. You know, I'm going to do it. And it's, um, it's actually been really empowering sometimes. So I guess that I'm trying to be more balanced. There are some values that I have that I don't want to compromise on necessarily that I feel strongly about and then there are other things that I think can be fluid because I think puritism in any form can be dangerous Uh, and if I stop sometimes and I think about where I'm actually at it's really easy to think about where you want to be but to think about where I'm at where I've come from it's been a lot there's been a lot of steps and it's very different now and so I have to also just stop and go yeah I'm happy with that you know but I have those moments you know I looked at my roof that still needs a water tank and I was like oh my god I'm like (laughs) I'm failing at this it's really easy to go I should be doing that or I should be doing this. But we've got to remember also that most of the time it's individuals saying that I should be doing more when a whole community used to do this together. A whole village used to do this stuff together. So now to just put all the onus on an individual person is just so... It's so um, disheartening. It's so disempowering for an individual, I think. And it's a lot of pressure. So I think I'm just a little bit more gentle on myself now mm. and I go, I'll get there with the water tank. That's okay. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Such a good reminder. And I love that idea of community, you know, community sufficiency, which people are talking about now, which is great. Mm. But how do you bring the village back into those seemingly insurmountable personal challenges? Like what is your approach to uh, that? A question I ask myself every day really because I just I do feel like that's an answer you know to some of this conundrum is having a a village relying on people again I think we need to uh, teach ourselves remind ourselves that it's okay to ask for help I think that's one of the main ones Uh, there's a lot of um, pride in the individual in our society I don't need anyone else. I can do it myself, Um, you know. But the thing is, you do need other people. It's just been hidden from us. So, you know, we put the kettle on. Someone made that. 
something may that people have mined the metals, people have been in the factory. There are hands behind that thing. We just don't see them. So it's really easy to be like, I got my money. I can pay for myself. But you're not actually, you are relying on a lot of people. They're just very spread out and you don't see them. So it's good to remind ourselves to rely on the people that are around us if we can. So I don't really have the answers. I'm still asking the questions. But I think that one thing that I can suggest is that it's okay to ask for help. And we actually should. We should be asking each other for help more. Yeah, and doing things together if we can. Mm. Mm. Well, I was just thinking that not only are you a debris machine, but you're also <laughs> a segue machine because you just effortlessly <laughs> segued us into a question around questions. Mm. And another mutual friend I believe we share is Claire Dunn. Mm. And spending time with her has been absolutely expansive and revelatory in every way. And something that I hear in her voice, in her words, is is about the importance of holding questions and mm. having questions and living into questions and them being far more instructive than facts. So I'd love to know if you work with questions in your life, if you have mm. perennial questions that keep cropping up year on year, decade on decade, and what don't you know the answer mm. to? Yeah, you just reminded me why me and Claire are friends. Because we, yeah, we both share that uh, belief, I guess. Questions for me are what drive me in the world. I think that questions are more important than answers. I think that that's one of the ways that permaculture actually works when you're talking about observe and interact you're observing, you're asking questions about what you're seeing in the world. Uh, You know, it's usually an observation, then an analysis. The analysis comes later. And for me, I think that that constant curiosity is why we're human. It's one of the things that has birthed so much technology and science and music and art and, you know, all of this that makes us what we are has come from us questioning things and wanting to know the answers. So for me, I always will say to people that to, you know, go outside, just keep asking questions. Why is that leaf like that and not that one? Why is that growing there but not there? You know, I wonder I wonder why that soil is exposed here and not over here. Why is this bird coming this time and not that one? You know, it's just it's it's endless. I think that what I am okay with is that it is endless. I'm not gonna, and I'm not going to know the answer to everything. And I think that that's a really good trait being an educator is I'm okay with not knowing the answer to everything. How can I? Um, and how can I even really claim that anything is true? You know, so I'm also I don't have the answer to kind of the, the mystery of life. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know why you're here or what is really going on. Um, And I actually think that that's beautiful. Yeah. Mm. That's one of the things that is humbling about living. Yeah. Mm. Hearing you speak in person is is such a joy. (laughs) And I derive 
you know, a similar level from watching your, your videos and your reels and your offerings on social media. Of course, they pale in comparison. But the vibe is... I'm so refreshed by your words and your your messages and your sentiments. And as we touched on before we started recording, I absolutely loved what you shared recently about being an educator and also feeling that responsibility mm. and taking that taking that upon yourself. And I felt this kind of like shifting in my body around all the entrainment that I've had on social media in the last few years where it is like junk food for the ego. And if I really ask, why am I doing this? I'm like gorging on the attention and the, you know, that, that kind of ego affirmation. Like, I hope I'm exaggerating here, but just Mm. hearing you speak to that, that responsibility that you feel in the world as an educator and your orientation to service Mm. fully defied the influencer climate that we're inhabiting Mm -hmm. living in and I'd just love to hear you speak more about that and to maybe help some of us Mm. finger pointing back towards myself who forget why we make stuff why Mm. we share stuff and what influence means and if we want to be influencers at all Mm. yeah yeah please elaborate Mm. yeah and look also I'm no saint like you know I I have a dopamine deficiency, so I've got to get it from somewhere. Um, And so, yeah, I think that, and and we're also, we've got to remember, I think, that there are troves of people that are employed to psychologically manipulate us. So it's also that thing about the individual of like, oh, it's my fault because I'm binging on social media or something. Like, no, it's not actually. Like, we've been... This has been really calculated as well. So I want people to remember that a little bit, that it's not not our fault. But it is kind of refreshing to hear you say that you thought that that really just um, completely uh, obliterated the um, influencer idea. Because, yeah, being an educator to me, I've been thinking about it a lot this past year. I'm rebranding. I'm you know, changing, something in me is changing. And I decided that, oh, something changing in me and I really need to put myself out there in a different way. I'd like to. And so this last year, I've been thinking a lot about who I am and what I offer and what's important to me to offer. And the education thing is just so huge because... I don't think that people realise the responsibility that they have in an environment like that. Uh, the worst thing I can think of to to do, obviously there's really horrific things in the world that we're not going to talk about, but putting someone off learning is such a disservice to our being. It's such a disservice to, you know... Taking a topic that is like mesmerizing and infinite and just so exciting and then making it dry is such a disservice to that thing. And it's also a disservice to people. You know, people have had really hard times around learning experiences, not feeling like they're good enough, not feeling like they should ask a question, feeling feeling stupid, not feeling like they're good at learning, like these horrible things. And it stifles our curiosity 
And that's what I don't want to do. That's what we've been talking about. That curiosity is a thing that I think will innovate our culture. And that's what I want to strive to do with the educational side of things. So to for me to kind of keep that in mind, I think that with my social media, I'll often just share like, hey, this is what I'm doing and look at that and like a pretty flower and blah. But there's just those moments that I have where I go, what am I, what am I doing here? I don't like to calculate what am I doing that's going to get likes? What am I going to do that's going to um, kind of sell or anything like that? Don't get me wrong. Sometimes I think about, you know, I've got to sell this course. I'm going to put it out there. But it comes back to that question thing. I ask why. Why am I doing that? And then I try and give people the answer. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I was remembering what came to life in our pre-recording pre-recording conversation around business mm. and the tension that you can feel in that space as someone who does interrogate capitalism and doesn't feel inherently intrinsically motivated to amass coins or can, you can't even eat them. Um, how do you go with that in running a business? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I also want to say that interrogate capitalism is a great shirt. <laughs> I really like that. <laughs> I think that. it's a bit too gentle, though. Inter- too, just interrogate. Just interrogate. Torture, okay, maybe. maybe. <laughs> we can think about what we're going to do about this. Yeah, obliterate. <laughs> yeah. But, oh, to me, look, this has been a minefield for me. It really has, uh, personally, with my values, with my upbringing as well. And, um, you know, really being taught that being greedy was the worst thing that you could possibly do. Um, I think that being greedy isn't very good but also it's had ramifications where it's been really hard for me sometimes to value what I do for money um and feeling like I have to give it away or that if I'm making money for myself and not in more of a community way with everything that I've learned about community and traditional culture and things like that then I've started to feel kind of dirty (laughs) or am I going against my beliefs Uh, so yeah, it's been quite difficult for me to have a business in a capitalist system when I quite identify with being anti-capitalist. And I think that one of the ways that I do try to embody my values is the education thing again. I feel as though education is a seed you know, and plants are the most anti-capitalist thing that I can possibly think of. They're just, you know, you can take a cutting of any one of them. They, you know, not anyone, but they sprout up. Every plant will produce more seeds than the plant itself. It just keeps going. It keeps giving, it keeps proliferating. And so I think that I'd like to do that with education. So that's one of the ways. And... I think I've been on a big journey of also trying to learn how to value myself in the space and learn that that's actually okay and learn that some of the security that I want in this capital world is okay as well. Yeah, Um, giving myself a little bit more freedom to do things that I love or to play or to 
this is quite a side tangent, but even something like, uh, I used to guilt myself about using a lot of technology because I wanted to live a simpler life and I didn't want to take uh, the opportunities away from other people in the world that might not have access to those things. And then there's also things like we're living in the time where synthesizers are made. You know, there's certain things that we have access to that is actually amazing. And I, I want to be grateful for those things as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I've been trying to learn how to also be grateful whilst not taking too much. Mm. It's very hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, yeah, there aren't any easy answers and no one I've asked the question around, you know, what are your, fi- what's your financial situation? How do you find security? What do you do to earn a cross? Like nobody has a simple answer, but I am inherently curious about that because I feel like it's the missing or it's not the missing, it's the foundational piece of, you know, this podcast is about skills that are going to bring resilience and not only resilience, but joy and meaning and fulfillment into the future, whether that future involves like the collapse of civilization or whether it's just, oh, hey, we're remembering what it is to be like a sensate creature in this world. But this whole piece around where do we live? How do we feed ourselves? What is that? Like, what are those inputs and what is that foundational kind of shelter piece that comes before we have the extra energy and the wherewithal to like learn the skills and to be in communion with the more than human world it's like yeah I want to know what people are up to Mm. (laughs) like how are we getting around this cost of living crisis housing crisis you know where are we weeding in the gaps and I don't Mm. mean pulling the weeds I mean being the weeds like how are we working the gaps in this time and yeah still like honoring those beautiful gifts and like the intense like the adulation you can feel around this like microphone and chair even mm. whilst also yeah knowing that like we still want to come home to you know our creaturely selves mm. Mm. yeah it's interesting you saying the you know how are you kind of weeding or being the weeds especially at the time of this um uh kind of crisis and moving into more economic crisis even though where we are in the world we're quite buffered from from it right now uh but one of the ways that uh, me and my partner are choosing to do that is um to build our own little houses you know and uh we've it's using a lot of time and it does use skill as well luckily um he's a wizard but it's using a lot of time so we'll actually go and we'll demolish we go to demolish buildings and we will demolish them and take the timber and it takes a long time and it takes a lot of work but we've stacked a lot of timber that's going to become our little houses and it really speaks to me because right now it just it's so ludicrous that there's so many of these houses that are old that are being demolished and a lot of that old timber old hardwood is going in a skip or going to the tip at the same time as all these housing developments that are being built with steel and the timber industry is now changing because we don't have enough timber to even support carpenters anymore. That is crazy to me. So to try and bridge a little bit of that 
and mean that I'm spending more of my time and less money to obtain these trees that were once living and monumental. Like to throw that in the bin is, that's a travesty. That is just not okay with me. So to try and just take a little part of that and then be able to make a little home with it, that's one of the, re the ways that I'm trying to get around a little of the crisis situation that we're finding ourselves in mm -hmm. financially and environmentally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, scavenging. Scavenging. Mm. Redirecting. Mm. Yeah. Well, at this point, I'm almost obliged to ask a question about uh, collapse because that was the premise of this podcast. It was based mm. on an article that I read that very much inspired me and it was around hard and soft skills that could be useful in developing resilience and adapting to um, whatever the future holds. What are your thoughts on the future, Taj? Do you make decisions based on kind of a fear of what's coming down the pipeline or are you putting your blinkers on and just living your life? Mm. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't really operate from fear in it in that way very much. I think I am actually putting my blinkers on, to be honest. I think that I, although I'm trying to make decisions that I think will be good for the future and learn skills, you know, I'm really big into learning and I'm really big into learning skills. So whether that's, you know, beekeeping or brewing or preserving or whatever, you know, I feel like I'm okay at all of these. I'm a master of none of, of those. I love homesteading, but I don't think I'm a master in any of it. But I like to learn little bits and pieces. And I think, of course, that's going to come in handy for the future. But when I think in terms of collapse, it's the social element that worries me the most. It's not necessarily my skill set and whether that could get me through. It's about how are people going to react and interact together in a collapse situation in a crisis because people can go mental in a crisis and I personally don't think that I can prepare for that so I think there's part of me that does have my blinkers on in a way and I think that partly it has been because I I get so crushed I get so crushed by what is happening in the world and I don't think that with globalization we're not designed to take in that amount of information we're not designed to take in that amount of grief and sometimes I feel guilty for that because I feel like I'm am I just putting my head in the sand but also I just don't think that my human body is designed to take on the perils of the world and so the more that I listen and the more that I research the more despondent I become and then the more careless and I don't want to do that necessarily so I try to take bite-sized things in and I try and feel it and I try and care and I just try and continue with what I find meaningful because otherwise I'll drown in depression really <laughs> so I don't know if that'll be helpful for anyone else um, but that's just my approach and sometimes I do 
want to be a little bit more uh, up to date with things that are happening all around the world but it's it's too much for my sensitive little soul yeah and there's a um, part of shame that I feel when I say that and I admit that to people in the world right now but I think that I have to be honest Mm. Yeah, I really share that um, position and the position being head in sand, bum to sky sometimes, a lot mm. of the time. But it sounds like the wisdom that's kind of encasing that is, is sound and solid because you understand so deeply how that alters your behaviour and what, um, it, how it hamstrings you really, like if you were to gorge on the bad news it Mm. doesn't really um further the good that you're doing in the world the ripples that you're casting so yeah it'll actually it it does the opposite sometimes and so i just have to be mindful about what i consume information wise and thinking about collapse and sometimes i wonder oh am i am i not taking this seriously enough you know, with everything that I've heard and everything that I know and all the people and networks that I have and being interested in, you know, permaculture and reskilling and all of these different things, am I not taking it seriously enough? But I have dedicated my whole life to learning skills. And I don't really know, you know, I don't I don't want to spend my whole life preparing for, for a future either. Mm. Um, maybe I'll regret that one day who knows but I don't want to spend my whole life preparing for a future that I don't have yet I want to I want to be here I want to be in the soil I want to be with the sky Mm. yeah so I was very excited to see that you actually have some stuff kicking off in February some courses some ways people can get mortage and sup the delightful nectar of herbal medicine botanical medicine can you tell us what's coming up so I'm very excited about it. So um, I have uh, a program. It's an eight-week program called The Herbal Apprentice that me and my colleague have designed together, Willow Herb Nerd. And this is available at series in Brunswick. So it's an eight-week course and it happens multiple times throughout the year. So that will be kicking off in February. I'm very excited about that. Uh, and it's designed to assist people in a very tangible hands-on way and the way that I use permaculture now in my life is mainly through education I think about the systems of education and the way that scheduling and everything flows in with each other and connects so I try and connect those dots for people so they're left with a very well-rounded course that actually makes sense and then where things land so there's that which is exciting Uh, With that course comes the Botanical Education Knowledge Cards. So they're two sets and I'm so excited because we've been working our asses off all last year to revise them, make them all make sense with each other so we can do different exercises and so you can use them in a variety of ways. And these are a learning tool for people to learn herbalism without books. So in a tangible way, so you can actually... Um, do processes of elimination, you can learn case studies, you can put things together and group things and take things apart and, yeah, stick them up and remind yourself of things. So that's really cool. So they'll be actually available as a PDF 
to purchase and a hard copy in February mm-hmm. as well. Lots of things happening in February, actually. So the year-long herbal, uh, herbalism course called Ritual Herbalism, that will be commencing in May. So that's uh, on pre-release now for my mailing list, but that'll be released soon. And uh, people are invited to join the program. It's about seasonal practices that are tied in with botanical education. So it's really about learning about your bioregion. So we have prompts in there uh, for our own kind of bioregions and our own, you know, Sabbaths and things like that. But it's designed for people to also look into the First Nations people of where they're residing and also their own ancestry and their own bioregion so that it really helps them hopefully to ground into place where they are and we're not just asking people to overlay this information wherever they are even though they can use it as a template. Wow that sounds incredible. Very exciting. These are such creative ways of um, yeah steeping ourselves in this knowledge and wow. I'm excited. Mm. Um, You also have a Patreon, right? I do. Mm. Yeah, I do. Uh, So that's if people want to kind of study with me ongoing. And uh, I'm using the Herb Cards. I'll be using the Herb Cards as a main platform for that. So uh, people will get uh, Herb Cards released every month, different ones. And we'll be going into exercises that people can do with them. Or I'll be talking to them as well so they just get that little bit extra so even if they've brought the hard copy of the herb cards then they can actually learn more through this platform and I also I also share recipes and um, different videos or they get early access to different workshops or discounts or things Mm -hmm. like that so Mm -hmm. yeah and I really value my patreon community so I want to say to those out there that are patreon thank you so much because it talking about times of financial crisis and things like that, uh, it really actually helps me to stay afloat and to keep doing the things that I love. So thank you all so, so much. Mm, Yeah. And is Patreon the portal of rebranding reveals? Mm. Because you've been drip feeding some little teasers on the socials and I'm so desperate to know what is going to become of formerly the Perma Pixie. Is there anything you can tell us about that? Yeah, I look, I, I didn't actually think about doing that, but that's a good idea. I should definitely share with my patrons. It's so funny because for me, I just think that, oh, yeah, this is a thing I'm doing. And so many people have been asking me about it. Like, so what's the new thing? And, uh, you know, just being cheeky with it. I'm, like, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> uh, but I, if, I guess what I can say around it is last year I was thinking about it a lot. I'm like, this isn't right anymore but what is, and I was getting really, like, I was getting so hung up about it. I really was because I built this, you know, persona, this brand, this thing for myself that, uh, people recognized. And that's scary to let go of, uh, as someone that's just a sole trader and I don't, I don't have another job. This is my job. So that was actually, that's scary to do, to leave something like that. So I was like, oh my God, if I do it, it's got to be like super poetic and it's got to be this and it's got to be that. And I'd actually lose sleep over it, to be honest. I was like, oh, maybe it could be that. No, 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 that sounds like this. And I don't like that. And I just go over it in my head. So it finally landed for some, for 
for me with something that was actually quite simple, but just, I was like, oh my God, that is what I do. So I'm pretty excited to, I'll be revealing it very soon with the release of my website. And now that you say it, yes, I'm going to release it earlier for Mm -hmm. my dear Patreon supporters because they probably actually really want to know. And um, I can talk to them about that and go into more of the philosophy of why and how I came to that conclusion too. Awesome. Mm. Yeah, I'll be waiting in the wings. Mm. Okay. (laughs) Is there anything that I haven't asked you that was so wanting to be said in this conversation? Mm. Oh, maybe one thing that I'll say is that one thing I'm getting more comfortable with is that um, the need for soft, slow and gentle spaces in the world. Uh, So I'm really trying to encourage that with my teaching. I'm really trying to encourage that in the world because I think that the productivity mentality is going too far it's I'm seeing so many clients and a lot of it is the same you know and the stress and the kind of need to be productive and also just the how we have to live to maintain a certain uh, lifestyle it's too much and I know a lot of people don't think that they have a choice And I understand that because we're part of a system. But I want to start encouraging those spaces of rest. So, for example, if I have a class and I have a schedule, but I can see that everyone's waning, I'm not going to push my content on them if they need a cup of tea or just have a conversation to someone. You know, I'll try and allow more of that space and that's how I'm trying to cultivate that softness into the world a little bit more I think that's important Mm. but yeah yeah that's Mm. really beautiful and quite rebellious yeah there's a you don't have to fight for rebellion another great Mm. (laughs) t-shirt well Taj thank you so so much for being here today I I'm feeling the life energy of everything you said. I'm really grateful. And thank you so much for the invite and to have a cup of tea with you in this lovely setting here and watching all the trees. I really appreciate it. Mm. I really appreciate what you're bringing to the world as well. Thanks, Taj. I've linked all the stuff we spoke about as well as Taj's courses in the show notes. Uh, does anyone look at those? I honestly never do. But definitely go there if you want to keep riffing on the resources and also look over the list of imaginary t-shirts we cooked up during the episode. If you'd like to support Resilience, the great news is you already are simply by listening, which in a time when every human and their greyhound has a podcast really means a lot to me. Thank you. If you have a surplus of enthusiasm, you can leave Resilience a review on iTunes, which makes the podcast look all popular and legit and stuff, Or you can pass it on through that original and endlessly resilient network known as word of mouth. I actually was at the farmer's market yesterday and interrupted some locals having a conversation about the podcast, which was utterly affirming and exciting and heartwarming. And I'm really glad you're finding resonance with these episodes. Once again, I'm not 
exactly sure who I'm going to be releasing next week, but I have a buffet of tasty, tasty thinkers and dreamers lined up for you. So don't go anywhere unless it's to the garden. Lots of love. Thanks for listening and see you next Monday.